turn to John chapter 8. We're spending these six weeks this fall here in the Gospel of John chapter 7 and 8, really wrestling with this question, which you'll see asked again today. Who is Jesus? Who does he claim to be? And so I'm going to begin reading at John 8 verse 12. But before we start with the passage that I am preaching, I'm going to tell you about the passage I'm not preaching. Because if you look in your Bibles and you figure out where we left off last week, in John 7 verse 52, you realize I'm skipping a dozen verses. I'm skipping John 7:53 through 8:11. And when you glance at this story, you realize it's one you've heard. It's one that has made its way even to just pop culture and the idea of throwing the first stone. A story of Jesus' grace and forgiveness. And so why, why are we skipping it? If we're preaching John 7 and 8, why skip this story right here in the middle? Well, it's because this story is not really part of John. Not anywhere in John. Your Bible probably has a note there. Mine does right in the line with the text. Maybe yours is in a footnote. But it tells us that the earliest manuscripts, the other ancient witnesses, don't have this in the Bible. See, this passage isn't in the earliest handwritten copies of John's gospel in the Greek. It's not until the 5th century that it appears anywhere in the Bible. And those are full biblical texts, but it's not included when the, the early church fathers of the 2nd and 3rd and 4th centuries, when they comment on the gospel of John, they go straight from verse 52 of chapter 7 to verse 12 of chapter 8, what we're doing today. And yes, it was included in texts from the, about the year 1000 until modern times, until scholars looked and realized this isn't actually part of John. Now, you might think, well, if it's, if it's in, how would I, like, can, I, can the Bible be, be trusted if you're telling me we should skip part of it? Well, see, here's the confidence I want you to have. I want you to have confidence that the words of the Bible we have today are the words the apostles wrote down for us, such that we have great confidence that this was added centuries later. Now, because all of your English versions of the Bible, starting back with the King James authorized version, included it, they didn't have the textual evidence we do. Thousands and thousands of copies of the Bible give us confidence in the true Word of God. But you might think, but, but why? Why does it keep getting added? Well, because as you read it, this is exactly the way we would expect Jesus to act. Jesus who confronts those that, that, that want to that punish others with the law while, while letting themselves off the hook. Jesus comes as one who is compassionate. It matches the picture of Jesus found in all four gospel accounts. And historians say this might actually be something that really happened. It might be a historical account written by another disciple at, at some point, but it wasn't written by John to be included in the gospel, and, and so we should. We should treat the Word of God with authority and come to it with confidence, and so that's why we're going to skip from chapter 7 to verse 12. But you'll notice in John's gospel, it's not really skipping at all. 
They're, we've just listened in as we heard last week to the religious leaders, the chief priests and the Pharisees. And then we go back out into the temple courts during the Feast of Tabernacles in verse 12. And so we are here now to the passage I am going to read. John chapter 8, beginning at verse 12. Jesus, his identity publicly challenged. Jesus telling us who he is. Jesus demanding a response from us. John chapter 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area, near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him, because his time had not yet come. Once more Jesus said to them, I'm going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. Who are you? They asked. Just what I have been claiming all along, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is reliable, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. They did not understand that Jesus was telling them about his Father. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we come to hear the testimony of the one you have sent, testimony that is true, testimony that is valid. And so, Lord, I pray for, for those that sit here without faith, Lord, that they would feel the weight of judgment that Jesus brings to us today. But Lord, in this passage that we would find the hope of eternal life, the hope of forgiveness, the compassion of our Savior. And so Lord, for those that come today with questions, with doubts about the claims of the Bible, Lord, I pray that they would find answers 
by the power of your word announced to them. Lord, for those of us who struggle to, to follow after you, to give our lives to you, Lord, I pray that we would find encouragement and strength. For those of us trapped in sin, Lord, help us to find forgiveness in Jesus, our Savior. Lord, we come because we are people desperate for truth, desperate for your honest answers, and so speak to us now. By the power of your word proclaimed to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' words here are familiar. Standing in the, in the temple, announcing to the, the gathered crowd, I am the light of the world. We heard in chapter 7, Jesus invite people to come to him. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Because Jesus is the one who pours out living water, a picture that the people would have seen on the, during the Feast of Tabernacles of the priests bringing water up from the, the pool of Siloam into the temple courts. And now Jesus stands and announces, I am the light of the world. Again, capturing the imagery of this festival because the huge torches, the, the cauldrons of oil in the temple precincts would have been lit by fire at night, a glow going out over the city. Now, a glow that you and I in the modern world with the convenience of light switches are familiar with. But in the ancient world, darkness would descend as night came, but not during the Feast of Tabernacles, not here in the city of Jerusalem, because light would shine throughout the tabernacle, throughout the, the temple precincts, flooding out into the city. And it's this image that Jesus captures when he stands and says to them, I am the light of the world. The Jewish pilgrims would begin to understand what he's claiming to be. The images of fire around them, the picture of God's promise that he was with his people in the desert, a pillar of fire by night. That's the image here at the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, this is the feast that reminds them that they tabernacled in the wilderness. They had temporary housing because they were on the move. They had been rescued from Egypt, but the promised land was not yet theirs but God was with them. And so when Jesus stands and says, I am the light of the world, it's a bold claim, a bold claim that those in the temple would have, would have understood, but, but even John's readers, those throughout the, the ancient Hellenistic world, those Greek readers scattered throughout the Roman Empire, when they heard this, they would understand the imagery as well. Even having never walked the streets of Jerusalem, they would understand this kind of claim, the power of light, bringing truth and knowledge and understanding, a philosophical term, a religious term throughout the ancient world. Jesus stands and says, I am the light of the world. Look again at verse 12, because he not only makes a claim about himself, but he places a claim on you, on me. Because Jesus says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's a big promise. You will be given truth and insight and understanding. You want knowledge. Do you want eternal life? Do you want hope? Jesus stands and says, I am the light of the world. And so it's no surprise here, then, 
that the Pharisees in verse 13 challenge him because they understand what Jesus is doing. He is claiming to be the only truth, the only way to God, the only access to gain eternal life. He stands in their midst and says, I am Yahweh in your midst, God with you. I am the light of the world who brings truth to bear on you. And so that would have been a challenge to ancient minds, but a challenge to us as well. We, we, we want to say, Jesus, who do you think you are? Like, how dare you stand and make that kind of claim? Make that kind of claim to, to be the only true religious leader, the only true God. Jesus, don't you understand how, how narrow-minded you sound? Because what has Jesus done right here? He said, every other path that you've tried to, to carve out on this mountain to get to God, every other way of your life, making yourself right, going on a pilgrimage, praying a certain way, following certain religious systems, finding a philosophy that will make sense of your life, every other way is wrong. I am the light of the world. So because when we hear that, as modern people, as global citizens, we think, but Jesus, you haven't left, you haven't left Israel. I mean, Jesus, why don't you take a tour out east and go see the, the religions that are scattered around the world? Why don't, you, why don't you travel the world and understand that, that not everyone agrees with your way of thinking? Jesus, why don't you, why don't you be a little more open-minded and accepting of people? But see, when, when we think that way, I, I think it's like when you, when you walk into a restaurant and you, you read through the menu and you've got your heart set on like, oh, this, this is exactly what I want. Oh, I'm, I don't care what anybody else orders. I have the perfect, and then you order it and the waiter tells you, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the chef just informed us they're, they're out of that in the kitchen tonight. And you think to yourself, I, let's just, I mean, let's just go. There's no point. But everybody else has already, they've already ordered, and so you, you quickly kind of scramble, and you find something else on the menu, and you think, fine, I'll just suffer through the rest of the meal. And so when, when Jesus says, well, says, no, 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 all those other choices on the menu, those, those are no longer any good. We sort of feel like, Jesus, you've, you've disappointed. Even if, even if the meal you order turns out to be pretty good, you're still a little disappointed. And that's, I think, how we feel when we come. Because we feel like we're holding the, the menu of, of world religions. We're holding the menu of, of philosophical systems. We're holding the menu of worldviews and saying, well, I'd really prefer this other worldview that doesn't ask me to follow after Jesus and obey him. I'd like to do it my own way. And then when Jesus says, no, 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 no there's nothing else on the menu except this, we think, you've got to be kidding me. But, but let's, let's switch the image a little. Let's say you take your child to children's, the children's hospital here. And you're given the diagnosis that your, child, your child has this disease. And you, you, you wonder, are, are there any treatment options? Could we do this? Is there, is there some kind of experiment? Is there anything we could do here? And your doctor says, well, well, there is one new promising treatment. It has a 100% success rate. Everyone who's tried it, it's brought immediate, complete cure. Would you stomp your feet and tell the doctor, no, 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 could you come back with a menu of options from which I can choose because your full and perfect solution just doesn't fit my choices? No, in that moment with your child, you would say, hallelujah, praise the Lord, there is an answer. And so when Jesus stands and says, I am the light of the world, yes, he is telling us that all of those other ways that we tried to get to God were false, 
but he's offering us one true and guaranteed way. You and I should, should raise our voices and cry hallelujah. Praise the Lord. There's an answer for us here. And yet we see today the Pharisees challenge Jesus. And so we're going to see their challenge of him and then his challenge in return. Because at verse 13, the Pharisees challenge him, here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus is saying, they're saying to Jesus, who do you think you are? How could we trust you? Uh, the law, and Jesus acknowledges this, the law in Deuteronomy says that, that the truth of a matter in a capital offense has to be determined by at least two witnesses. And they're saying, as I count them up here, Jesus, there's one of you, just one. You come with these gigantic claims, and yet we're going we're gonna to toss them aside. And then look at Jesus' response to them. They say, your testimony is not valid, and he says, my testimony is valid. Verse 14, what I say is true and reliable. It is believable. Why? Because I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. I am the one who has come down from heaven, and I'm going back to heaven. And so if you want an answer from heaven, then you can trust my testimony. I'm the only one whose testimony you could trust Jesus is telling them. Because the answers you need are answers that can't come from this world, and they're answers that must come directly from God. And so Jesus challenges them then in verse 15. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. All right, now, now that second phrase there, when Jesus says, I pass judgment on no one, well, in verse 16, he immediately says, but if I do judge, so it's clear Jesus is passing judgment. Verse 26, Jesus says, I have many other, much more to say in judgment of you. And so when Jesus says here, I'm, I pass judgment on no one, what he's saying is, I'm not going to play by your rules. I'm not going to play by your standards. I'm not coming from an earthly perspective to just have an argument with you about what you've figured out and what I've figured out. No, I'm coming to pass judgment by a different standard, not by your human standards. Because verse 16, Jesus says, if I do judge, my decisions are right. Why? Because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. You want two witnesses, Jesus says to them? I have come from the Father my testimony is valid. The Father who sent me verifies my testimony. You have your two witnesses. And yet we still kind of shrug and say, well, could you make it clearer? I mean, I, I, would, I would really rather if you did it my way. If you would kind of explain this only on my terms. Do you see what, what Jesus is doing? He is saying, what kind of authority would you want in this matter? On the questions of eternal life, of grand and fundamental truth, of absolute truth at the core of who you are, what kind of authority would you want? If I gave you an authority who came down from heaven and spoke with the authority of God in heaven, would that count? 
But you see, they're judging by human standards. So, well, no, Jesus, because you couldn't have come from heaven. You came from Galilee. We know who you are. We know where you're from. We've, we've, we've heard about your parents. And so they, they challenge him directly then in verse 19. Okay, you're talking about your father. Where is he? Like, if you want two witnesses, let him show up. I mean, again, they're, they're, you're, you see obviously missing the, the truth. It's made really obvious to us in our translations because Father, when Jesus speaks it, is put with a capital F so that we know it's, oh, the Father in heaven. And the Father, when they say it, is with a lowercase f so that we know they're misunderstanding him. Because Jesus is, is making clear that if you knew me, if you recognize the authority with, with, with which I speak, if you heard me speak truly, then you would know God the Father in heaven. Because Jesus is telling them, I, verse 18, I am the one who testifies for myself. Jesus is placing his own words at the level of the words of God in heaven. At the, at the level of the revealed word of God spoken to us. When Jesus speaks, it is with greater power than when the prophets of the Old Testament stood and said, thus saith the Lord, because we have the Lord himself speaking. Jesus authenticates his own words and validates those words by pointing to the Father in heaven. And what other source would you want? How would you want to check an absolute statement from God? How would you want to verify it? Would you want to be able to put it under a microscope? Would you be able to want to see it through a telescope? Would you, would you demand that if God were to give you truth, you would have to be able to independently verify it on your own, according to your own standards? But that's foolishness. If we want absolute truth, if we want the first truth, then we have to go to the source himself. And Jesus is standing here to speak to us. See, if we wanted God to make himself known, then we'd have to listen when he actually speaks. And you and I know the struggle. I mean, you've just had to turn on the news to know the struggle of finding truth, of validating testimony. Culturally, we, 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 we wrestle with this. We, we, don't even know, we don't know how to do it. How would you find truth? Well, that's not merely a problem of the last week, is it? That's a problem we always live with. How would I know what's really true? Wouldn't you want, wouldn't you want someone to step in with absolute authority and clarity and give you truth from heaven itself? That's what Jesus is doing as they challenge his testimony, he declares his testimony to be true. And then he turns the tables. They want him to be in the hot seat, but he spins it around and, and casts the questions against them, the challenges against them. He tells them, we've seen in verse 15, you are judging by the wrong set of standards, by human, by earthly, by fleshly standards, based on the desires of your own heart. You're after power and control here, and so that is controlling your pursuit of truth. You're not seeking truth for itself. You're seeking it for your own good, for your own power. I'm not playing by your human standards. Jesus' judgments are true. 
He tells them in verse 19, you don't know the Father in heaven. You claim to be scholars of the Old Testament, to point back to the law and say, Jesus, you have to meet the demands of the law, but you're not willing to meet the demands of the law. You don't even know the lawgiver himself. You don't know the Father in heaven. If you did, then you would listen to me. If you really knew the Father, you would know me. Jesus is challenging them, and, and John in verse 20 gives us that, that little note, that even though Jesus is out in a public area, out probably in the court of the, the women, the, the courts were, were concentric, but, but here the, the Jewish women, Jewish men and women could come, and, and this is where the, the offerings are given. Offerings of, of your tithes and offerings brought to the Lord. They're, they're being brought here. Jesus is in a public and accessible place, John makes clear to us. And yet, no one seized him. They're planning to seize him. Remember, that's the plot that's already underway. But yet they won't do it because they're powerless in the face of Jesus because his time had not yet come. In verse 21, he, he says again, we, we see this as a, a, a new speech. It's, yes, connected thematically because it's here in this week of being in the temple courts. We saw in verse 12, Jesus spoke to the people. Now in verse 21, Jesus once more says to them, he says, I'm going away, and you'll look for me, and you will die in your sin. I mean, that's a profound judgment from God against those that claim to be seeking him. You will die in your sin. Now, Jesus will say in verse 24, you will die in your sins, plural. Here, he leaves it in the singular because he's focusing on their sin of unbelief. To not believe the true claims that Jesus has made is to sin against God. That failure to believe is in itself enough to condemn you to the judgment that Jesus brings. These are weighty words. You will die in your sin. That's horrific. Because the one of truth, the light of the world, the one who offers rivers of living water, stands right in front of them. And yet with the truth literally staring them in the face, they reject Jesus. And yet is that what you do today? As you rest upon your own goodness, are you looking at Jesus and saying, I don't, I don't need you? As you, as you live a life marked by your own desires, are you looking at Jesus and saying, Say, I, I don't need that? Because, because when the sins become plural, when the sin of unbelief spreads out into your life, then it will become sins in the multiple, where you do whatever you want, however you want. And Jesus is telling us, you will die in your sins. That's the judgment that Jesus brings. He's drawing a clear line in the sand here. He's making an absolute distinction. He, he's, he's telling them in verse, in verse 23, you are from below. You're speaking in, in an earthly way. I am from above. You are of this world. 
I am not from this world. He's making an absolute distinction. He's, he's raising the question, well, how would I ever get to the place where Jesus is going? He says, if, if you follow the path of the Pharisees and trust in yourself, you will not find the way. You will die in your sin. Has someone made a way possible to where Jesus has come from? That's the question that hangs here in John 7 and 8. That's the lingering question. A question then, then look at verse 25, that they ask him directly. He says, you, if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. And so in verse 25, they ask, who are you? But there's an incredulity here. Who do you think you are to stand here and condemn us? How dare you, Jesus? Do you know who I am? Do you know where I have been? Have you walked with me? I'm holier than all these crappy people around here. Look at them wandering through the temple courts. I'm not like them. I am a Pharisee. I have followed the commands of God. I have done what is right. How dare you tell me that I deserve the judgment of hell? And yet that is exactly what I sound like. When I look at God and say, I don't need to follow Jesus. I don't need to live that way. I don't need to trust in him. I'm shaking my fists in God's face and saying, I'm actually a pretty nice guy. I mean, follow me around for a week. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty nice, except on, the, on the, the ice rink. I'm a pretty nice guy. But don't you see how foolish that kind of argument really is? I'm good enough to get myself into heaven? I mean, that's a really selective reading of my life. It ignores all of my selfishness, all of my sinfulness. And so when Jesus stands in front of us and says, you will die in your sins, and we ask that question, who are you? He answers it for us. Look at verse 25 again. When they ask, who are you? Jesus says, just what I have been claiming all along. I am the light of the world. I am the Son of God here. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's who I am. I have much to say in judgment of you. God who sent me is reliable, and what I have heard from him I am telling the whole world. Now, they still don't understand verse 27 tells us, and so Jesus is going to become even more explicit here. Verse 28, so Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I already do, for I always do what pleases him. Now, to understand what Jesus is saying, we, we need to know what he means when he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man. It's the language he used back in chapter 3 when Nicodemus, who we saw in chapter 7, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night in John chapter 3, Jesus tells him, you must be born again. You must have a spiritual rebirth by putting your trust in me. Jesus challenges Nicodemus. 
If you, if you look at John chapter 3, you can, you can flip there. It's just a few pages in your Bibles. John chapter 3, verse 11, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. We speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? You see, the, the argument which is happening here in private is the same argument that's happening in public in chapter 7 and 8. Who is Jesus? Can his testimony from heaven be trusted? And so in John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, 13, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is speaking about himself. He has come from heaven. Verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted, must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. All right, Kevin, so you turned us from John chapter 8 to John chapter 3 to move from an image of being lifted up to a picture of snakes. I thought you said this was going to help us understand what's going on. Well, now we'd have to actually flip all the way back. Now, what are the snakes? You have to flip back to the, to the book of Numbers, to when the people were wandering in the wilderness. Remember, they're in the temple course with Jesus celebrating their, God's faithfulness to them in their wilderness wanderings. Because the people grumbled and complained in Numbers 21. They, they, they wondered if God could be trusted. I wish we had just died while we were back in Egypt. And so God sent venomous snakes to bring judgment. Well, with the judgment immediate upon them, that fear of death right in front of them. Then they cried out to God, we have sinned against you. And so take this punishment away from us. And what was Moses commanded to do? He was commanded to make a bronze snake and to lift it up. The picture of judgment was lifted up before them. When they looked to the judgment, it was taken away from them. Now, Nicodemus would have understood this immediately. He wouldn't have had to flip back to Numbers 21. He would have known it from his Sabbath school lessons. And so he would have understood immediately when Jesus says, the Son of Man must be lifted up. He must be lifted up in judgment. It's the story of the cross of Jesus Christ. Nailed to a cross, a public execution, lifted high for the world to see, so that John can announce to us. Back in John chapter 3, we hear the announcement of good news to Nicodemus and to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Do you hear the good news? When Jesus says here for us in John 8, when, the son, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, when you place me on a cross, then you will know the truth that I came to bring forgiveness, that I came to bear the judgment that you deserved. See, how do you and I escape from those scathing words of Jesus, you will die in your sins? It's because Jesus died in my sins. My sins upon the Savior lifted up. See, it's only in the cross that you can understand the message of Christianity, the good news of who Jesus is, who he claims to be. And so what's the expectation? 
If the sin is a sin of unbelief, then how do we turn? We, we believe. That's what verse 30 says. Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him. And so that's what's demanded of you today. Will you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Stop trusting in yourself and trust in him, the one who is lifted up, the one who through his death brings forgiveness to us. See, here in John chapter 8, Jesus is pointing us forward to the end of the story, to the end of the gospel. The time has not yet come, but it is coming. He's letting us see the coming judgment so that you and I will respond. He shows us the coming danger. You will die in your sins. But he shows us the coming hope. He will be lifted up on the cross. I ask that you'd bow your heads so that I can pray that God would press this truth into our lives. Father in heaven, we, we feel the weight of this passage. And yet, Lord, even as it presses against us, in judgment of our sins, Lord, I, I feel the quick shrug of my shoulders to cast it aside, to justify myself. And so, Lord, for those who sit here, hearing these condemning words that come to us from Jesus, I want to quickly set it aside, Lord, I pray that they would not be able to do so, that they would feel the, the weight of their conscience bearing down on them, your Spirit showing them their guilt. But Lord, for each one of us, that we would come and find our hope and our trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, that we who follow after Jesus would come and find hope in those words that Jesus is the light of the world. He offers us the light of life, eternal life. And so, Lord, let us be bold in our witness for Jesus, faithful in proclaiming his truth, willing to accept his testimony. Father in heaven, we come praying in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.